This is the Beer and Pubcast. Speaking up for British beer and pubs. Hello and welcome to the second edition of the Beer and Pubcast, the regular podcast from the British Beer and Pub Association. I'm Adam Batstone and today I'm joined by BBPA Chief Executive Bridget Simmons and Policy Director Andy Tai. Today we'll be focusing on a subject which has existed in the licence trade for centuries. That's the tie between pub companies and their tenants. And it's particularly relevant at the moment because the government is reviewing the pub code which underpins tied house law. But before we get into that, perhaps it might be useful, Andy, if you could just give us a bit of context around this quite a complicated subject. Can you just explain relatively briefly what what the pub code essentially is there for? It's essentially there to regulate the relationship between the pub company uh, and their tenants and lessees. So things like the level of information they're required to give them when they take on a pub, when someone's coming in, uh, the day-to-day governance of that relationship, information around uh, when a rent review is coming up, the sort of rent they might be expected to pay, and also various points of the agreement when they're able to move to potentially a different agreement than the one they operate at the moment. If you could just give me an idea of the number of pubs that there are in the UK and and what the current numbers are in terms of the different models of uh, how they're managed. There's around 48,000 pubs uh, in the UK. Around 8,000 of those will be directly managed. So a manager will run that pub on behalf of a pub company or a brewer. Um, about 17,000 of those are tenanted leased pubs. Those they, are the ones which are affected by the pub code. Yeah, so well, the yeah. vast majority of those will be run with a supply agreement and uh, covered either by the statutory code or the voluntary code. And there are tenanted lease pubs that are run on free of tie agreements. Um, and then the rest are this sort of wholly independent sector, freeholds, where if someone wanted to run a pub like that, they would then have to buy the freehold for that business uh, and run that as well themselves. So it's a significant percentage of the entire pub estate which are subject to the to the code. Yeah, so either the statutory or the voluntary code uh, would cover about a third of the pubs in the UK, just over. Bridget, why is the government sort of responsible for this? Has it always been something that the government has regulated or was it previously unregulated? Not at all. I mean, you said the pub tie has existed for for centuries. It has. But we used to have a situation in this country where we had big company names like Bass, like Scotch Newcastle, which owned all the pubs and which sold their beer through the pubs that they owned, which is what we still have today. But in the late 1980s, the government decided that they were going to stop them owning as many pubs. And in effect, what it's meant is that Bass and Scotch Newcastle have disappeared and we've got internationally owned breweries instead. But on the pub side, what happened is that you had a number of brewers that still own pubs, but you also had a number of property companies that set up to own pubs, but do who don't own a brewery. So that's been the change. Some of those companies are family-owned businesses that are still brewers. Shepherd Neem, Fuller's own pubs and have brewed beer. Um, some of them are, are small companies that 
brew less beer, but that's been the rationale for why this happened. And then over a number of years, there were complaints that the tenants were not being treated fairly by their landlord. And the government eventually decided three years ago that they would intervene and they would establish a pubs code adjudicator, which is not dissimilar to the groceries adjudicator that exists for regulating the relationship between supermarkets and small suppliers. And the pubs code adjudicator was set up only for six companies that own more than 500 uh, tied pubs. And three of those companies are brewers and three of them are purely pub companies. And the rest of the industry which exists is regulated by what we would describe as a voluntary code. We have a pub governing body, uh, which I sit on, which, which regulates that relationship. And they're mainly smaller family companies within that group whereas the bigger ones comes under what the government intervention. The problem with government intervention is it's inflexible. I mean, primary legislation is always inflexible. Uh, the pubs code was introduced three years ago. It has it had no transition. The, the groceries adjudicator had a year before it did anything. The pubs code adjudicator has had no time whatsoever. So it hasn't been an easy process to get where we are today. And just from the BBPA perspective, before the government government took a hand on this issue. Was the BBPA involved in overseeing that relationship between the the pub owners and the tenants? There was really no overseeing until it became an issue. And once it became an issue, yes, the BBPA was involved in establishing the pub governing body, in having voluntary codes which were set up to govern that relationship. And ultimately, then it was the government decision that they would actually have something that's statutory. But as far as we're concerned, a lot of change occurred under the voluntary arrangements. And now, these days, pub companies are much more involved in how the pubs are run. It used to be a bit like a franchise. So you would be the owner of the property and your your lessee would go off and run it and you'd have no involvement in it at all. These days, pub companies offer support from IT to Wi-Fi, helping them with costs, but also to helping them to design menus. Since the smoking ban, we've now become much more food-led. We have a billion meals a year that are served in pubs. We've got 50,000 bedrooms. The least intended arrangement has always been a low-cost entry into running your own business. If you want to be a major franchisee under McDonald's, you probably need £500,000. If you want to run a least intended pub, you probably need £20,000. So it's a way for entrepreneurs to come into the industry and everybody would say it's the great ideas that come out of the least intended sector because you've got these entrepreneurs who, who run the pubs and run great businesses. And that's that's the tradition and the uniqueness of British pubs in the UK today. So Andy, as I said at the outset, the government currently reviewing the arrangements with regard to the code. Where do you kind of fit into that review process? Presumably the government has been going through a kind of consultation. So what is the BBPA's uh, contribution been to the review so far? Well, under the, the legislation when it came in, there was an obligation for the government to review it after the first two years it had been in operation, and, and that's starting to take place now. So along with our members, yeah, we'll be responding to that consultation, putting in our views around what elements of the code we think are working particularly well, and um, what elements of the code we still think uh, more work needs to be done. And as Bridget said, a lot of the issues around the code that we still see are due to the fact that it's a hugely complex bit of legislation. Uh, it had very little uh, time between the, the 
the regulations being passed and coming into force. And it's taken a while to get those processes in place uh, for the pubs code adjudicator to get a knowledge and an understanding of the sector that allows them to perform their duties properly. And even the different expectations under the code itself and, and the interpretation of bits of the code has meant that the first three years, yeah, there's been quite a lot of learning uh, from all parties and, and that's still happening. But And there are some good things that have happened in relation to the code. So, you know, those systems that have been in place, that support that the companies now provide, they're certainly reporting to us that they're seeing, you know, greater quality and interest in terms of people coming into the trade and interest in taking on. They're offering more flexible agreements to suit the different arrangements that work best for their operators. Uh, and there's lots of good things happening. But as we say, there are still areas, particularly around some of the areas of interpretation of the code, some of the decision making and guidance that's perhaps been a little slow, uh, and also that that clarity hasn't been there for all parties uh, that still needs working through. But essentially, the code itself, we don't believe there needs to be any sort of major changes to the legislation itself, but it's still a work in progress. In terms of the function of the adjudicator, as the name would suggest, to, to adjudicate where there are disputes between um, pub companies and, and their tenants, how frequently is that happening over the last three years since it's been in existence in this form? There's been quite a lot of, I mean, initially there was a lot of inquiries into the adjudicator's office, as you'd expect when something new comes in. Those inquiries into the office have now started to tail off, but there's still a backlog of cases in relation to arbitrations and when both parties are seeking clarity around uh, particular agreements that are being offered under the code um, that still need to be worked through. So there is still quite a lot of outstanding areas. There is still a lot of arbitrations going on and we would like to see, you know, as improvements that we're suggesting in relation to the code, ways to unblock that to ensure that actually um, referrals to the adjudicator become the exception rather than the sort of norm as we go forward. Bridget, the establishment of the code in the first instance in its format and this review process. What are you hearing from from the pubcos about it? The pub companies are determined to work with the government and the adjudicator to make this work. And a major change that was made right at the end of the legislative process was to introduce this right to a market rent option. So effectively, the tenant could say, I don't want to be tied to my pub company. I want to buy my beers from somewhere else. And if anything, a lot of the dispute has been around those clauses. And because they were introduced very late, there's a lot of complications in those clauses. And that's what the adjudicator has been dealing with. The problem from our perspective and indeed the pub companies is that the adjudicator took an awfully long time to put out the first adjudications and arbitration results of what he was doing. And so far, he has refused to accredit the individual market rent only options offered by the six companies. And we believe that if those agreements were accredited, then the tenant would have more certainty about exactly what is in so that. It's, it's, How is it being offered? There's a question of clarification then. Is, yes. is that the issue? There is a question of clarification. And also, we'd like to see more what we describe as golden threads. So some idea at the moment, there's a, there's a sort of suggestion that it has to be based on what the individual licensee can afford rather than what is right for the pub. And it should be based on what is right for the pub. And 
I, I think we've got to be careful. At the end of the day, whether you run a contract to run a local authority swimming pool and you invest money in that local authority swimming pool, but it's only for five years, but you know at the end of the day that that local authority is going to be reletting that contract. This is not dissimilar in that form. And we need to make sure that at the end of the day, the local authority still owns that swimming pool and the pub company still owns that pub. And actually how they run that and what that pub is going to offer is about the partnership between the lessee and between the the pub company. There used to be a lot of very long agreement, 20, 25 year agreements, which are probably not right for the economic times that we're in. So now you're getting a lot of shorter agreements, as in my swimming pool analogy. It is actually quite difficult to make much money out of those agreements in those shorter spaces if you're going to invest a lot of capital. So there's a lot of toing and froing in that particular area that I think we need to understand a bit more. But like Andy, I'm saying, what we're saying to the government is we don't want massive changes at this stage. It should be seen as work in progress. There's more that can be done on both sides. But the changes we want to see are tweaks rather than major changes in legislation. And just to add to Bridget's point, one of the biggest issues with with the code as it stands and with some of the interpretations and some of the judgments that Bridget's talked about is that a you know, a traditional tenancy or lease offered by a brewery is very different from a standard commercial lease operated, you know, in shops and other parts of the market. So when you're moving from one to another, that's quite a big change potentially. Uh, and it's understanding that and, and realising that, that that won't be right for, for many, many tenants who actually you know, enjoy all those benefits and the support that the pub company offers through the tenanted lease model. And there's a sort of risk and reward balance to that as well. So, for example, one of the, the strongest points of the, the tenanted lease model and why it survived, you know, hundreds of years is it works throughout the economic cycle. So in difficult trading times or in January when you're not selling too much beer, having lower fixed costs through a lower rent helps that business trade through those periods. Um, And in really tough times, you know, the pub company will step in and provide additional support to that. Uh, But then in the in the good times when trade is booming, then both parties benefit through that through the through the wet rent and the additional uh, revenue that the companies um, earn as part of that. So it's a very important thing. And similarly, when a new tenant takes on a pub, they'll have very little knowledge often coming into the business. So the sort of the training, the investment, the support that the pub company offers is huge for them to start to make a success of that business. Uh, and the concern with the model, of course, is then as those um, tenants get more successful, if they want to move to a different contract, uh, then obviously that's where, you know, as Bridget says, there creates that difference between what's right for the particular pub uh, and what's right for, for the company as well. There's also here clearly, I mean, just to give a Navarro analogy, if you take on a flat, you often have to pay three months rent up front and you've possibly got an absentee landlord who won't come when you've got mice running all over your floor. The relationship is much closer, but for those who are thinking that they want to take the market rent only option, they've got to decide is can they do without that support that the pub company offers and can they afford to do all the things that you would do on a commercial lease? So on an MRO agreement is more like having a lease to run a shop. Uh, and it's whether you've got the financial wherewithal to do it, bearing in mind that this is a low-cost entry into running your business. And you may decide at the end of the day that either you haven't got the financial resources or you haven't got the expertise to run it in that way. On that point of expertise, looking at some of the sort of issues which have gained publicity around the pub code and the implementation, 
tend to be where you have situations inevitably where tenants are unhappy with the way that they've been treated. And and one of the sort of themes which seems to come through that is that the pub companies, obviously large organisations, have got an awful lot of resources and are able to put the time, implement the knowledge and understanding, whereas if you're a tenant, you're busy running a pub. And just from that perspective, you know, the evening out the playing field and having uh, a, an effective way of representing the tenant's interests, is the pub code working to that end, do we feel? Yeah, I think I think we it is, definitely. And as, as you say, one of the issues that the pub's code was specifically trying to address was that imbalance in information, that imbalance in power, if you like, between the two parties uh, when it came to negotiating an agreement that was right for that pub. So now under the code, it's very, very clear that the information that the pub companies must provide up front to enable those tenants to make an informed decision, they should be taking all the professional advice that's recommended as part of that. Uh, And it does ensure that both parties have full information and full knowledge. Uh, And that's definitely an area I think all parties would say the code's, you know, working well. And we referred earlier to the fact that uh, I think the BBPA had commissioned some of its own research to, to feed into this review process. What are some of the headlines which have emerged from the research? It was commissioned by the six companies from Eurocat Economics. Yeah, so we facilitated it on their behalf. Um, and what the uh, report, it revisits some of the initial rationale for the code coming into place in the first place. And one of the things it highlighted was there was a lot of noise around the code. There was a lot of emotion around the code um, and the way, the way the relationship works, as you might expect. But it was very difficult to establish whether the model itself was broken. So the next thing that Europe Economics did was then revisited uh, the traditional tenanted lease model and explained you know, why that works in a competitive market, how that balances the needs and the skills of the two different parties. And then what it then set out to do was have a look at where the code has improved in those areas in terms of rebalancing that relationship, where through the MRO option it gives that additional bargaining power, if you like, to tenants and lessees uh, to um, to move to a different deal if they can't agree uh, a tied deal. And, and so it, it does try to if you like, look at all the, the positives that have emerged from the code, and there are some, but it still then highlights those concerns around, um, particularly around the MRO option, that clarity, that certainty for all parties, and being very sh- clear that there is a risk that the model itself and the viability of the model you know, will be undermined if the interpretation, as, as Bridget says, of some of those judgments continues to take a quite subjective view about what's affordable for a particular tenant in a particular situation rather than, you know, what agreement, you know, a company would offer on the open market for that pub. And that's really important. And and again, one of the most important things about this agreement is it's the pub company that is putting in the capital investment. So our members are probably investing 200 million every year in capital. And as we all know, if you want to encourage people to come to any hospitality uh, venue, it's got to be about quality. And that quality has got to, the standard has got to be kept up to encourage people to return. So the pub companies put in a lot of that investment and we want them to continue to put in that investment. The tenant then goes and runs that business and it's that relationship and making sure that you get the right return on your money. If you're as a tenant, you're putting in some capital as well. That's a very important part of what uh, Europe Economics looked in this report. And just in terms of the process, and so the review is ongoing at the moment, what are the next sort of dates on the timeline that uh, people should be aware of in terms of where where we get some more clarity about the future? So usually in a government consultation, they would um, have a 
a requirement to respond within three months of the consultation ending. So it closes on the 22nd of July. So in three months' time, there should be a government response and usually at the same time some um, proposals as to what they're going to do next, whether they're going to make any tweaks to the code, whether they're going to change any powers of the adjudicator, uh, whether they're going to uh, direct the adjudicator to issue you know, certain guidance on certain things. It, it remains to be seen. And of course, with the uncertainty at the moment in terms of who will be in charge uh, of the code, come the end of that consultation period. It's it's not absolutely certain, but normally three months. Which leads quite neatly, something Andy, you were kind of hinting at earlier, that the current uncertainty we're in at the moment politically, we have a new prime minister in Boris Johnson. What is the general feeling, if we have one at all, about what, how he or his influence throughout government may affect policy in the sort of areas that you're principally concerned about? I suspect that he may be less hands-on. So under Theresa May, there's been very much control from Number 10. I think government departments haven't had much autonomy. I would hope that uh, government departments will have a bit more autonomy. And there are a lot of ministers and senior members of the cabinet. We always say, if you help the BBPA to cut or freeze beer duty, then you're bound to go on to be in cabinet. And quite a few of them are in the current cabinet. And we hope that they will remain. So we will be working with whoever is appointed, uh, as you know, we cover a whole range of government departments. But this particular responsibility comes under Bayes, the business uh, department. And we will be talking to them and they will take some time to come up to speed with this agenda, which is why Andy's right. It may take two or three months or maybe a little longer for them to respond to the consultation, decide what they want to do. The other problem with this, as I said, legislation is inflexible. If you wanted to make major changes, you'd have to have to create parliamentary time. We have a little issue called Brexit. We are leaving the EU. Um, we have at the moment a set date. There is an enormous amount of legislation that goes with that. So it's going to be difficult for government to find time to do anything other than that in the next few months, may I say the next year. So, so while the pub code is clearly a very important issue for your members from a sort of macro government perspective, it's not necessarily the most pressing issue on the inbox. I think from a macro perspective, it is really important because government wants to feel that uh, less that businesses and people who they work with work well together and that there's fairness on both sides. I absolutely see that. But I also think that government just because of the very nature of it, has got other legislation in in parts, which is why we're saying don't make major changes to the legislation. There are things that we would like government to do to direct the adjudicator more. There are minor changes that we perhaps could see to the code. But at the end of the day, work in progress. Let's see where we are. Europe Economics highlighted the vast majority of tenants and lessees are satisfied with their agreement they're happy with their pub company and they would recommend them to another licensee. So on that sort of slightly more positive note, I'm curious to find out from you both whether you've been recently on your travels to any interesting pubs, maybe tied pubs and uh, seen uh, examples of where this is working well. Bridget? Yes, I actually went with uh, Mims Davis, who is the Minister for Sport. Um, we have something called English Tourism Week. At the end of that week, I try and meet an MP in a pub to celebrate English Tourism Week. And we went to a pub in her constituency. She's the Minister for uh, Sport and Responsibility for Gambling, but also for loneliness. And the pub plays a really important part in loneliness. And we went to a wonderful pub in Eastleigh, which is in her constituency. Uh, the licensee, who was a tenant, uh, not only was he a dietitian, which was actually helpful, 
people in, in what we were able to eat for lunch. But also, he, when we asked him about loneliness, he said he had MenCap who send a minibus around on a Monday. They actually bring people into the pub. They have dinner in the pub. It was a perfect example. And the things he did in his local community were really important. But he was a tenant and lessee who had a very good relationship with Star Pubs and Bars and the Heineken, who is ultimately own that pub. Um, and obviously, it was a relationship that was working well. Excellent. Andy, any, anywhere you've been recently which you'd like to flag up? There's a pub in Broadstairs where I live that's just been refurbished called Neptune's Hall. It's a Shepherd Neem pub and it's a lovely building. It's got huge open windows. They've put a wood-fired pizza oven out the back and redone all the back area. It's two minutes walk from the beach. Uh, they have live music there and the Whitstable Bay Blonde Lager is, is very good indeed. I'd uh, just put in a word in for um, what used to be, I think we could all agree, pretty desperate places on occasions, the uh, the railway station pub. But I had occasion to pop into, the, I think it's the Betjeman Arms at uh, St Pancras Station. And what a pleasant experience that was compared with some of the grim uh, railway pubs that we maybe remember from the 1970s and 80s. So it's good to see uh, that the pub company Companies are putting money in and, and really turning some of these establishments around. Indeed. Uh, so on that note, uh, we're out of time for this episode of the Beer and Pubcast, but thanks very much indeed to my guests, Bridget Simmons and Andy Ty. Please visit the BBPA website for some accompanying show notes. And until next time, cheers. This is the Beer and Pubcast. For more news from the British Beer and Pub Association, you can follow us on Twitter at Beer and Pub or visit our website, beerandpub.com.